We are in 1 John chapter 5, beginning with verse 13, and let's continue with what we've been doing. Let's stand together, and we are going to read this together. We are going to close out chapter 5. I want you to know, pay particular attention, I hope you've been reading this week, because this is an important um, part of the letter. This is essentially where John is saying, okay, everything I've just said to you, this is why it matters, and this is what I want you to remember at the end of my letter. He's bringing it all together. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. All right, you can be seated. Before we jump into this, there's lots of exciting things talking about prayer, and then if you are a follower, that God will answer your prayers. We're going to have some fun discussion about that. Talking about sin that leads to death versus sin that doesn't lead to death is always a lively conversation. You were probably having it on your way to church today, I'm sure, but there's a lot of stuff going on in here. Let's, uh, Let's begin with prayer, and then we'll dive in. Father... God, your word is true. Your word is good. Your word points us into things uh, that lead to life. They point us in the direction of the Savior, and they show us how we can not only know you, but follow you well. I pray that you would open your word to us today. Uh, You promise that your word will not return void, and so I pray that it will change us in some manner, in some way today, as we have confidence and trust in you, knowing these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So we've got quite a bit to cover here, but there's really two things I want us to go over, and if we do these two things well, it will have been a great morning together. One is I want you to see the kind of confidence that John wants his readers, and by extension us, the confidence that he wants them to have, and he also says some very specific things that you can know. Now, a lot of what John has been leading up to is basically reframing Jesus' teaching for a group of people that didn't have the opportunity to hear Jesus. And John has been giving his own testimony and his own experience of what he had learned and many of the things that he's included in this epistle and will include in the next two epistles are things that he experienced personally from Christ. So you can go back and especially in the gospel of John and see where he's basically saying a lot of the exact same things that Jesus said. 
So this is a, an important epistle for this group of churches in which John is reaching out to in Turkey. We've gone through kind of his history and what he's done, how important John was in the founding of the early church, and that he went out and he went into the area of Turkey where he invested, he planted, and he helped those churches that were forming. And along the way, just like Paul did and the other apostles, whenever one of the churches they were working with kind of needed some encouragement or just wanted to say something or felt like God was saying, this is what I think you need to hear, or at times, especially with Paul's letters, something's kind of going wrong, then they would write a letter and say, listen, I'm just trying to encourage you to stay in the faith, stay in what is true, stay in what is real, stay in what is right, because you will be tempted to walk away. That's just the way the world tempts all people. So as we walk away from today, if you pick up the confidence that John wants you to have, and then you are able to know for certain the thing that John wants you to know, this epistle would have been successful. And so we're going to go through this, and as we have been, I want to have some opportunities for you to share. If you have questions, just, just ask them or raise your hand. And if I don't see you, everyone around you needs to raise their hand too, because I don't always see everything. Um, If you've got a thought or anything else, or in your reading, something came up and you just wanted to, you felt compelled to share, I want you to have the opportunity to do that, because this is one of the ways in which we encourage one another, we learn with each other and from one another. So as we come through here, uh, John is kind of, verse 13, we really could put with the previous section within this chapter because it really is kind of capping that and then just continuing the thought into the next verse in which he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He's saying here, we've had a few of these places where John says, this is why I'm writing to you. But this is kind of his concluding statement. All these things I'm writing, you remember last week we talked a lot about how important it was to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, he did die, he did come out of the grave, he did ascend to heaven, we do have faith through Christ. It is important that you know that. If you question whether Jesus was just a moral teacher, he was just a prophet or a good rabbi or someone who was compelling, then that is not that does not give you any confidence that you have faith in Christ or that you have any kind of eternal life with God. John has said over and over again, you have to believe that Jesus is the true Christ. And when you know that Jesus is the true Christ, then you can have what he says here in verse 13, you may know that you have eternal life. And what John is showing us here is that who you know is more important than what you know. Now that is important for us. Because you and I live in a place in which we want to prove how much we know. Don't we? I mean, usually we end up proving how much we don't know. Let's be honest. But we like to say what we know. We like to get our opinions in there. All all you have to do is post something on you know, Facebook, and then it's on. Now, let me show you where you're wrong, and let me show you what I know and what you don't know. And, oh, it's so much fun. It's an exciting way to spend your time. What John is saying and what Jesus was saying was, who you know is more important than what you know. Now, I don't mean by that that not knowing stuff about Scripture and about Jesus, about God, and about our faith is not important. But you can know a lot and yet not know Jesus. 
But if you know Jesus, you will be compelled to know more about his word and what it looks like to follow him. What John is saying is, what's most important is who you know. This is all about Jesus. We have to get this right. If we get this right, and as we've talked before, there's a difference in saying, yes, Jesus was the Son of God, and believing Jesus was the Son of God. (laughs) There's a difference there. There's a difference in saying, okay, I intellectually assent to the fact that Jesus was probably Son of God, probably born of a virgin, may have even died on a cross and rose from the dead. Wow, that would have been exciting to see, but that's interesting. There's a difference in that mindset and the mindset that says Jesus was here, he was real, he is real, he is still alive, and he is the Son of God. And that changes my whole perspective on the entire world, my entire life. There's a difference in those mindsets. Whenever we get who Jesus is, and that becomes real to us, then it leads us in every other place in which you will grow in your faith. If you only read Scripture... When someone makes you feel guilty about not reading Scripture, then I question whether you truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, I don't say that to now guilt you into reading Scripture. Like, now i got to go do it. I would say, if you do not want to know more about Jesus, something's wrong. Something's wrong. There should be a place in which you are, you are fundamentally changing the way you see the world because something has happened and it requires you to respond to it. Jesus entering into the world, God himself entering into the world, performing miracles, teaching, taking all of our sin on him, willingly going to the cross, his life literally ending, conquering sin and death, being raised from the dead, saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I am leaving a helper for you that is going to teach you all the things you need to know. Whenever you believe that that happened, then that changes the way you view every day of the rest of your life. And that's what John is saying. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you ever question if any of this is real? Probably. Do you ever just think, you know, gosh, what if I die and this wasn't real? What John is saying is, listen, if, if, if you believe this, you can know. You can know. And he goes on in verse 14 and he says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Because not only does he want you to know that this is real, not only does he want you to know that you have eternal life, God wants you to be confident. And this is where some of us struggle. Some of us struggle with being confident about what we believe and what we're doing in life. That's why at times we'll kind of tweak our profile, we'll kind of tweak who we are when someone asks, well, what do you do? Or what's your, you know, tell us about yourself. You may elaborate in some ways that are a little embellishing, kind of hide the things you don't want people to know. He wants you to be confident. He wants you to know what is real and what is true, and you can act in a way that you're not concerned with how other people feel about that. He wants you to be confident. And in this one, it's so interesting that he talks about prayer in the sense of what this confidence brings you. 
But it reminds me a little bit about what Jesus was saying when he said, you know, come and follow me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. When you have confidence in something, I often tell guys, well, some Sometimes guys will want to meet with me that kind of do what I do outside of, of Journey. And I'll try to help them think about growing a business. And I'm no expert, believe me. I'm no massive tycoon that's out there. But, uh, <clears throat> but I have done it, and I have started something. And so I will meet with them. And one of the primary things that I will talk with them about is you have to be confident. You cannot go in saying, uh, yeah, I don't know, can you do this? Uh, Maybe. Am I hired? No. No, you're not hired. <laughs> Absolutely not. You know, it, the confidence is so crucial within life because it hinges on us saying, I know something to be true. This is going to be true. And I know that this is going to happen. Confidence is so crucial within life. And what we kind of, I, I don't kind of, I struggle with the culture that does not want confidence. Like, if I don't have confidence and I seem like I don't have it together and I'm just always broken and there's just nothing wrong. Now, don't misunderstand. Recognizing your brokenness is a key to knowing Jesus. But when you put your brokenness out there so other people will go, oh, Mark, it's okay. Oh, you're doing such a good job. Oh, Mark, I just... You know, listen, God wants you to be confident and God wants you to be victorious. God does not want you to ignore your brokenness, but God does not want your identity to be your brokenness because Jesus did not die on the cross for you to sit around and go, oh, woe is me, poor little me, look how bad my life is. No, Jesus died on the cross so you could say, he is my savior, he is my Lord, I'm living with him forever, he's got this all covered. And so John is saying to them, this is not a new problem. You guys aren't like the bad people in human history, right? Me included. God wants us to have confidence. He wants us when we walk out of this place and we talk about Jesus, not to say, yeah, Jesus is, you know, he's great and all. I mean, if you don't like Jesus, that's fine, which, you know, it's cool. I have questions about Jesus, but, you know, I'm, but I kind of am following Jesus. John is saying, no, no, no. You need to be confident. It does not mean your life has to be all together. But you could be confident that God is stringing your life together where it needs to be and where it needs to go. It's important for us to look around and see people who are hurting. It's important for us to look around and see people who are broken. It's important to recognize our own brokenness within us. And there are times that we need to admit our brokenness so that others can help us deal with it. But he wants us to be confident in the fact that we are his and he is ours. But what's interesting and what we often struggle with is the area in which he first talks about this. Now, he's going to mention this four times in his first letter, the first epistle. Epistle means letter. In his first letter, he's going to mention confidence four times. And in two of those times, he is saying, John wants, wants us to have confidence for the coming judgment. In other words, what Scripture tells us is, you and I are not, you know, we're not off scot-free here. 
We are going to stand before Jesus, either when he returns, when we are raptured, when we die, however that all works out, and whatever your uh, you know, understanding of, of all those end times things are, we are all going to stand before Jesus. And scripture says, at that point, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's a moment that we will all stand before Jesus. Now, there are those who are going to stand before Jesus, and it is not going to be a good meeting. Because... You're going to have to give an account of your life. You're going to have to give an account of the sin within your life, whether or not you received or you ignored or you pushed away Jesus out of your life. You're going to have to answer for that. For us, as followers of Jesus, what we hope for and what Scripture tells us is, is that because Jesus died for us, took the punishment for our sins, if we believe in him, then we will stand before him and he will see a cleansed person through the blood of Jesus Christ. In that moment of judgment, we do not have to be afraid because Jesus took our punishment. For those who have rejected Christ, it's going to be a very different conversation with God. This is what he says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him, and shame at his coming. In other words, if Jesus shows up today, we're ready, excited. Come on, Jesus. In chapter 4, verse 16, he says, So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. That is an important concept for what it means to follow Jesus. The occasional churchgoer does not experience this. It is by living our lives, following Christ every day, in which we recognize and we experience this mutual abiding in each other. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. In other words, once Jesus is our Lord and Savior, we look like Him. Now, some of us uh, are a little farther in the process than others. But He is drawing us to that place where we are increasingly looking like Him. But before God, our sins are forgiven. Our hearts are cleansed. And we are excited for this time where we get to be reunited or united with Christ in this way. But yet, in a couple of places, John talks about confidence, not just in the coming judgment, but approaching God in prayer. So John wants us to be confident in approaching God in prayer as well. In chapter 3, verse 21, it says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. So here we can have confidence before God and whatever we ask from him, we receive him. Now, this is a problematic verse for some of us because sometimes we ask for stuff that we never see. Can I get an amen? All right. Thank you. And we read these things and we're like, God, okay, now you say, you say, if I pray for something, it's going to happen. But some of the things I prayed for, nothing's happened. And this is what we need to struggle with to understand the text, understand what John is saying, understand what Jesus said. 
Because the idea that a person, because they have faith, is going to get whatever they ask God for, that is not a biblical concept. And yet, that is the way we often read these texts. This just means God has to give me whatever I ask for. And there are whole faith groups that hinge on this belief. God has to give you what you ask for. It doesn't matter what you ask for. You ask for it, God has to, to give it to you. We often talk about this in the, in the sense of the prosperity gospel, the, the idea that God loves you, and if you are a good Christian, then you will be a wealthy one. And yet what we find over and over throughout the world is that gospel disappoints. It is not real. It is not true. And God never said that. Oh, man, I know that's so bad, but you asked for it, so I'm going to give it to you. That is not the way God thinks, and that is not the way God works. But at times, we want to read the text that way because it feels good. He says in chapter 3, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And then he further defines what that is and the commandment is that we believe in jesus and we love each other just as he commanded us i want you to just tuck that in your pocket because we're going to come back to that because this is a crucial understanding of how do we understand what it means when consistently we read in scripture that if you ask god will provide we'll come back to that in john fifteen seven, he says if you abide in me and my words abide in you Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. These are Jesus' words that John records in the Gospel of John. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. He then goes on and saying, I want you to have confidence. And part of the confidence that you're going to have is that you're going to know a few things. And not that you're going to have to think about a few things. Like, you can know. If John is very emphatic. This is the ability to know for certain, for sure. Hang your hat on it. I know this is absolutely true. You can know that you have eternal life in Jesus. This is your confidence. That you know Jesus. Let me ask you this. How do you know someone? And let's not talk about Jesus at this point. Let's just talk about somebody you know. How do we know anyone? Just throw out some answers. What? Spend time with them? Learn about them? What else? How? What? Talk with them. Tell them about yourself. Yeah. Be transparent. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing worse than feel like you know somebody and find out it was none of it was true. Yeah. Be transparent. Be truthful. Understand their character. What would they do in a situation? What else? How do we? N- yeah, just meet with them, spend time with them, have coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Takes time, experiences, shared experiences together. 
What else? Trust. Back here? You listen well? Yes. Yeah. It's a two-way relationship, not a one-way. Listen to understand, not to respond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So knowing someone is different than knowing about someone. We all know about people, and people know about us. They can know something about our history. They can know something about what we like or what we don't like, but it doesn't mean they know us. In fact, uh, what does it take for you, and some, I think some of these have already been mentioned, what does it take for you to be willing for someone else to know you? Don't judge me. Okay. Don't judge me. What? Trust is a, yes. Both of those are huge. And being willing to be known by someone. What else? Let me grow. Maybe let me make mistakes too. Hmm? Love. Yeah. Are you my friend when I screw up as well as when I do good stuff? Yeah. What else? Feeling safe. It's a huge thing, yes. What else? Um, care about me. Like, Do you really care about me? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Good, good, good. Now, when we transfer that, which you knew we were going to do, and we transfer that into knowing Jesus, all of those same things are still true. Now, if we believe what we read in Scripture, then we believe that, one, God is, for the most part, as much as we are capable of noticing, God is transparent. We know God is trustworthy. We know God does care about us. But have we gone the step to know Him in the way that He knows us. Someone would say, well, we can't know God in the way He knows us. I mean, He's God, yes. But that has never stopped anyone that really loves Jesus from trying to know Him more. So yes, there are limits. And there are every analogy breaks down somewhere along the line, and even this one, in our relationships with others, none of them quite compares to relationship with Jesus. In fact, uh, even just his relationship with the church is best defined in the New Testament as the relationship in, that happens between a husband and a wife in marriage. That whenever Paul is specifically is talking about the relationship between Christ and the church, he's talking about, he's comparing it to relationship between a husband and a wife, a marriage. Do we know? Now, I would say I've been a Christian a long time, uh, not as long as some of you, longer than others. And I don't know Jesus in all the ways in which Jesus can be known. And I, I fully believe that, that can't, if that can happen, it will not happen as long as I'm living here in this body and in this place. The best I can do is whatever he has granted to us whenever I stand before him face to face. That's the best I, it will ever be. Um, but I, I do not know everything there is to know about Jesus. But I am motivated to know more. I am motivated to see more. Just lost my notes. No, oh, it's restarting. Okay. I've been having tech issues all morning. Yeah, Apple. 
It's the enemy. Oh, it's updating. <laughs> Isn't that exciting? All right. Well, I don't listen. This is this is how you know how well I've prepared. Yeah, I'm gonna be here for a while now. Yeah, no, I got it. How do you know someone? Now, what we find then in this text, and I don't have the text, so I might need I, I might need the a Bible up here. Isn't that bad? A pastor needs a Bible while he's preaching. That is, this is so not good. That is so not good. All right. How do you know someone? Whenever we read through those verses, John is going to say, you can know certain things. So if you are in Christ, and this is an important descriptor, you, if you are in Christ, you can know certain things. If you are in Christ, next slide. If you are in Christ, you can know, next one. There we go. Jesus hears our prayers that are in line with his will, and he answers them. Now, this is the reason, this verse right here is the reason that we often will pray, God, this is really what I want to see happen, and then what do we tag on at the end? Someone, if it's your will. Like, that's the catch-all, okay? Uh, If it's your will, because, I mean, it may not happen, and if it doesn't happen, it's not because it didn't pray for it, it's because it wasn't God's will. Now, that is, that, there is a lot of truth to that, and that is why I as well will often pray, God, this is what we want to see happen if it's your will. However, we're also reading this in the context of which John is saying, I want you to be confident, and I want you to know certain things. I want you to know certain things. John Stott said this, about prayer. He said, prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or for bending his will to ours, but the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, and align ourselves with it. Every time prayer is a variation of the theme, your will be done. One of the reasons that we often pray, if it be your will, is because many times we don't feel like we know what God's will is. Somebody say amen to that. So it's a natural response. It's a natural way to pray. And there's no condemnation if we pray that way. However, if you stop there, You will not grow to the place in which John is trying to tell you what you can know. And that is that if you pray according to God's will, whatever you ask, you will what? You will receive it. There's confidence in knowing that. Now, I hope you know someone, if you're not that person yourself, that when they pray, things happen. And you're like, i got to make sure they're praying. Because when they pray, stuff happens. If you don't know somebody like that, we've got some of those people in this church. I'm telling you, this is one of the great confidences we can have in not only knowing Christ, knowing he's real, knowing he's active, and being excited about being in partnership with him and working with him. James 5, 19 and 20 says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. And will cover a multitude of sins. Can you imagine praying for a brother who is sinning and say, if it be your will, bring them back? 
Oh, thank you. Oh, that's a good one. I got all new notes in here. What did we just say about being trustworthy? Oh, there's even highlights in here. I don't know who this is an apologetics one. Like you ought to be up here. Who? But if you probably it got highlights in here and everything. This is awesome. Um, let's see if they got any notes for today's sermon. There's not. There's no notes or highlights for today's sermon. So that's good. This is all new stuff. This is all new stuff. Can you imagine praying that to God, though? God, this person's wayward. They're struggling. They're hurting. They're headed down a bad path. I wish you would intervene and restore them if it's your will. Yeah. Well, it is. It is. My point is not whether or not that he's going to answer the prayer For every person who's wayward, the point is we don't have to question whether he wants a wayward person to come to him. The wayward person can. No. Yeah, we're jumping ahead. We're jumping ahead. One of the things I would just say about this, and and this is something I struggle with just like you do. And there's no prescribed formula within scripture while we have tried to come up with as many as we can that will guarantee that your prayers will be answered other than this align your will with god's the only place that we can take from scripture of where do we go with this is this you don't simply throw out 15 things and hope one of them sticks Instead, you spend your time in prayer and you spend your time in life aligning your life with God's will. Now, I recognize that we all, myself included at times, are uncertain what God is doing at any given time, in any given place, and what He is wanting to happen in our lives in this moment, especially when things are not going well. I think it's easier when things are going well to say, oh, God's at work. I got a raise at work. God's at work. You know, I... We were at a volleyball tournament. Emma's playing volleyball. We were at a volleyball tournament. And one of the line judges, if you don't watch volleyball, you have these two people, usually not official people. Uh, Keith could tell us all about this. Not the official, like, like we're not the most trustworthy people to be line judges, right? But that's who are doing it. And I saw one guy, and it was a, it was a close match. It was a close match. And a guy from the other team, he had a, a patron saint of something. I don't know what the saint was, but... He, every time a new game would start, he would kiss it both sides and pray and do motions. And he was clearly asking God to give them success in their game. And uh, clearly, Tennessee fans did not do this, uh, well, for about 10 years now. But I digress. I digress. But whose prayer does God answer, right? God, if it's your will that Tennessee would score a touchdown, please just not a field, not a, not a field goal, God, a touchdown, right? You know, you know how those conversations go. I'll, I'll come back to you in just a minute. Whose prayer does he answer? Which team? Which side? You know, one of the things we've got to get through is not just saying, I'm just going to lob up as many of these requests as I can and hope one of them lands and that God answers it. Nor should we come to the place where we just say, I will not expect God to do anything. If he does it, fine. If he doesn't do it, you know what? No skin off my back because I'm not really counting on it anyways. 
But instead, what he's saying is, I, when you align your will with mine, every single thing you ask for will happen. And so what our goal needs to be is less about figuring out what his will is. It needs to be less about trying to form some kind of language within our prayer, the secret code that kind of bypasses this stipulation. And we also need to avoid just saying, well, I'm just not going to hope too much that this prayer will be answered. Instead, what if our prayer life was focused about aligning our will with God's? And that happens not in the moment that you're praying for your friend who is sick. That happens in the moment where nothing bad is happening. Because we all pray when bad things happen. Even people who don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. We all pray when bad things happen. But we align our will with God's every single day. So whenever he talks about that, I just, I probably, and this is as clear as mud for everybody here. That's what, that's what my dad would say. This is clear as mud. But rather than reading this, these passages from the sense of, if I can just say it the right way, or maybe just maybe God will say, okay, I want that too. Instead of approaching prayer that way, what if we approached our prayer lives, our quiet times, and just our discipleship from the standpoint of, how do I know what God's will is? And why don't I just do that? And then you will begin to pray with the things that are in alignment with His will. And when you begin to pray in those ways, you begin to see God move. And it's an, inc- it's an amazing thing. So, like, what about situations where you're, like, not even sure what to ask for? Yeah. It's like, you think about one thing, if you ask for that, it hurts someone else. Yeah. But if you don't ask for that, then it hurts you. But, like, it's, it's more complicated than that. It's not just, like, me versus them. Yeah. Like, if you don't even, like, know what to ask for, and you just pray about that situation... Like, I don't know, but you can yeah. do something, please. Do you think that's like us praying in the sense of like praying for God's will to happen, or is that just lazy faith? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think that's just living life. What if you don't know what the outcome should be, but you just know this is not preferable? Yeah, I think that is one of the ways that we do approach what is God's will. And I think that's a way of just living life. And many times, that's, I think when we, when we are seeking God's will, and we're doing that through reading His Word, talking to other people who are followers of Jesus, and we are you know, looking for what God says is important, that's what I'm making important in my life. When God says turn from something, I'm turning from that thing. When God says do something, I'm doing that thing. You know, I'm trying to do those things. Uh, that's one of the things the Holy Spirit does. Is he does align us with God. What you're talking about, I think, is, a, is approaching with a submissive heart that says, okay, whatever God's going to do here, I don't know what he wants to do here, but I'm just giving it to him. I think that's a great picture of submission. Mark? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's very good, Mark. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it. Do we sometimes in that leave ourselves an out? As in, well, if it's not God's will, in other words, I don't know if I really have enough faith that you're going to do this job, so I'm just going to say it wasn't your will. Yeah, yeah. The, in the area of sickness, injury, health, impending death, this is, it is such an emotional reality. Yes, it is very difficult. And there is a place where, you know, what if God doesn't want to make somebody well? You don't want to be at the, at, at the hospital and say, well, heal them if it's your will. I don't, you know, and there is confidence in which we, you know, Scripture says you don't have, you don't have because you don't ask. We, we want to come confidently and ask, but there is a place where we recognize that God's will is more complicated than simply He doesn't want anybody to be sick. He doesn't want anybody to hurt. Some people, their sickness or their death is meant to do something positive for the world. And His will is not that they suffer, and His will is not that they die. His will is that eternity is recognized. And that this person's suffering, while in this moment, if this was all that life was, feels like it should stop right now. The suffering should stop right now. What God is looking is at the whole scope of eternity. And so that does change when we understand, well, God's... But again, that's aligning with God's will. And, and it's easier for us to say that about someone else than it is about ourselves if we're the ones in the hospital bed. God, heal me if it's your will, although I have heard that prayer so many times where someone is literally saying, God, I, this is your life. If you want to take it, if you want me to, to lose a limb, if you want me to be in a debilitating condition for the next several years of my life, I will do that if that is what you want because I know that, that you have a purpose for that. That takes submission and that takes an incredible amount of faith and alignment with God's will rather than just assuming God's will is, life is comfortable, life is easier, I am happy, and I'm not struggling. Leslie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he didn't only give us that. He gave us a Holy Spirit that said, when you can't pray, <laughs> the Holy Spirit will intercede for you. Yeah, and we'll pray for you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Stacy? The alternative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So that's hard for all of us to let go. Yes. Um, but also, I was actually going to go to Romans, it's eight, Romans 8.26, where it talks about mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't say when we don't know what to mm-hmm. pray. What it actually says is, for we do not know mm-hmm. what to pray for as we ought. And so the, the baseline assumption is here in this particular verse that yeah. we already don't know how to pray appropriately, probably because of our own mm-hmm. desires and things that aren't just that. And so it says, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings to keep the word. So I think even when we do feel like we're Right, right. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Any, anybody else? I, I do not want to put you in a state of um, anxiety anytime you pray from now on. Like, oh, I'm not supposed to say if it's your will. I'm just going to find out what is, your will is. That is not my goal. I still pray that way. You will pray that way. God, I, I don't know anyone who has such a, an insight into God's will that they are never uncertain. So I, I, my goal here is not to just make you like, you're bad if you say that. I don't, I don't want to create anxiety. I still pray that way. But, but rather than taking the passive stance of just being like, I'm just going to throw it out there and we'll see what happens. Spend your time in prayer and your time with God, not only knowing Him, but aligning your will with His. And I will tell you that is not a, always a fun thing. I like my will. I like what I like, right? And when God says, you're not supposed to like that, I'm like, but have you, but it's, have you seen it? I mean, God, I like it. And so there are many times in which God says, listen, don't do that. And it's a submission of will. What John is saying here is you can be confident that when you submit your will to his you will pray in the fashion that God answers. Let's spend our time doing that. Was there a hand in the back? Did, okay, all right. No. What I was thinking of here, especially for a great example, is Jesus in the garden where he says, my father, if it's mm-hmm. possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Right, yes. That's a great example. Yes, thank you for sharing that. So if you're in Christ, you can know that, you're, um, that Jesus hears our prayers that are in line with his will, and he answers them. He then says this weird thing um, about sins that lead to death and sins that do not lead to death. So this was probably a bad idea. But uh, let me just throw it out there. What do you think? What is the difference between a sin that leads to death and a sin that doesn't? Tracy? Okay, rejecting Jesus. Anybody else want to throw a gander? Yeah. Kind of like the same thing Jesus said for like the joyful blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Like the cycle of you're not going to feel convicted, so you're not going to repent, and you're mm-hmm. um, unrepentant, and you don't have like the Holy Spirit. I feel like that is the saddest, and um, that, that's just the saddest thing ever. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, you know, knowing that he's real and just saying, I don't want that. I don't really care. Yeah. I'm going to live however I want, and I, I'm, I go to heaven, whatever. 
Yeah, good. Okay, you just ignore all my notes on this section. Y'all have pretty much handled it, but I do have a couple of notes. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, as we look at this, there are three views that people take on this issue. And I just, I ask, and because this is a hard issue, and this is one of those places you've got to have to stop, and you have to read, and you have to struggle, and you have to pray, and you have to look at other places in Scripture. And one of the rubrics for interpreting Scripture is always going to be, how does this message align with the rest of the message of Scripture? In other words, scripture, if Scripture contradicts itself, it's not trustworthy. If, if, if Scripture teaches in one certain place, and now here's something that seems to say something different, then now I need to understand that in light of everything else. That's, just, that, that's some of the basic hermeneutic that we use, a hermeneutic being the way in which we interpret Scripture. How do we interpret Scripture? And so the, the three particular views that are, are had, first one is kind of in the vein of what you're saying, Bruce. And, and the way that the Old Testament talks about it is a difference between inadvertent versus intentional sins. In other words, I, by omission, don't do something I should have, or, I, you know, versus, listen, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm doing it anyway. This is awesome. I'm going to love it. This is going to be great. And I don't care. I'll ask for forgiveness later. And so many will take that stance on what he's talking about, sins that lead to death and sins that don't lead to death. There are some problems with that view, that this is what John's talking about. And the problem is, is now, does that mean some sin is okay and that Jesus only died for the sins that lead to death? So you you have to struggle with understanding what this means. I think a lot of us would like to say that God overlooks our unintentional sins because that way I don't worry about them. I'm not, I'm not challenged to have to deal with those. I don't have to take a deeper look at myself. Instead, I can just be like, well, then no. Okay, let's study your Bible. Nope, don't want to do that. If I study my Bible, I'm going to know more stuff I'm not supposed to do. I want to have some plausible deniability. Can't go to Bible study. You know, there are people that take that, that stance. And, and, and so if that's what he's saying, but here, here's where, you know, a place in which that is taken is in Numbers chapter 15. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a year old, for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake. When he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. And they, you know, in other words, they know what they're supposed to be doing. But with the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among the people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. And what he means by, what, what the, that means a high hand is, I know the truth. I know what is right. I willingly ignore that to do what I want. Now that would be an intentional sin. We read that in Numbers, and that ha- is a very common Old Testament understanding 
of this. Now, that creates again some problems for us as Jesus enters the scene. Are there some sins that Jesus' death was necessary for and some sins in which Jesus' death was not necessary for? And are there some sins in which I am forgiven through Jesus and his death on the cross? And are there some sins that I'm not forgiven, although I'm trusting him as my Lord and Savior because I just messed up that much? See, it gets messy, doesn't it? So now we're talking about, okay, but I've got numbers saying this thing. The unintentional person, you know what? Sacrifice a goat, you're good. But you did it on purpose. There is no hope for you. Now we're all thinking, oh, wow. I mean, did I ever do that? That's what we read in in Numbers, and that is one of the interpretations. It's inadvertent sin versus intentional sin. Now, do not uh, miss the fact that intentional sin is really bad. It is really bad. When you know something is not good, and you have said, I am submitting my life before Jesus Christ, but I'm doing this thing anyways. There is a lack of submission in that moment in your heart. And what the apostles are indicating and what John is saying in this, pray for a person who has committed a sin that doesn't lead to death, but don't bother praying for the person that has committed a sin that leads to death because there is no hope for them. That is what John is saying. When we take a, a stance of knowing what is true and acting contrary of it because we just want to do it, it demonstrates there is a lack of cohesion in our faith and our relationship with Jesus Christ. There's a problem there. So that's one stance, yes. Um, so like that stance is very like it's very prideful to say that there are some sins you don't need Jesus to die, like you didn't need Jesus to die for. Because in Ephesians it clearly says that you're saved by grace, not by works. Mm-hmm. So you can't be forgiven of your own accord, even if the sin is like really small. I think that's just very dangerous right. point of view. It's very prideful and very... It, it is very pride. Well, it's, it's a lack of submission, is what it, and that's pride. And that is pride, yeah. Okay. So, like, what about, what about gluttony? Mm. Like, oh, come on. That's not a bad one. <laughs> well, like, you said that, um... Like, I'm not, I'm not like, saying no, no. I'm no. just saying, like... I'm sucking my stomach in, too. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. So I do think this is is a problem with the argument of inadvertent versus unintentional sin. Because now we can very easily get right back down and to being controlled by sin and the fear of sin and get right into that works mentality that now I've got to make sure I don't do anything wrong at all. I think that's this what you're saying is one of the reasons 
that this argument is not what John means. The inadvertent, the, the sin that leads to death, the sin that doesn't lead to death. This is why he's not talking about inadvertent versus intentional sins. The second view, I'll come back. The second view is what's already been mentioned. The second and third views have already both been mentioned. The second view is, is what we read in Mark chapter 3. It is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And scripture says you cannot be forgiven for this. You cannot be forgiven for this. Mark chapter 3. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. You cannot be forgiven for blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now hang in here. Let's go to the number three. The third common understanding of the difference between these types of sins is a rejection of the gospel outright. And you, you've heard it. It's been presented. You've received conviction by the Holy Spirit. And you have just decided, I just reject it outright. Um, Hebrews 10 says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. In other words, I've got it. I understand it. I'm convicted by it. I don't care. I'm going to do what I want anyways, which is the shape of many, many people in the world today. And as we look at both of these, both the second and the third options, the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, which is basically saying, Holy Spirit, I don't want to hear anything from you. You got nothing for me. I don't like you. I don't believe you. Is very similar to rejecting the gospel because that is the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit until a person comes to faith, convicting of sin to draw to the gospel. So in those two cases, that would make more sense for what John is saying here about sins that can and cannot be forgiven. When we begin to concoct a list of unforgivable sins, we deny the power of God to restore a person. Whenever, whatever your sin may be, there are very minor sins that will trip a person up forever. And there are people that have done some of the most heinous things on the face of the planet who have had a, had been convicted by the Holy Spirit and their heart has been changed and renewed. And while no one in this world would see them different, God will because of Jesus Christ. When we create a list of the unforgivable sins, we put ourselves in the place of determining, God, this is too much for God to bring you back from. And the only place God says that that happens is whenever they outright reject the gospel in some way. That is most likely what John is saying here. Pray for those who have received the gospel, but they're struggling, which would be 100% of the believers in this room. They're struggling. Pray for them. God actually doesn't just want to sit back and go, right, let's see. see what they're going to do. Let's see what Leslie's going to do. You know, see what Amy's going to do. What's Heath going to do? I don't know about Heath, you know. What's Mark going to do? Instead, he says, I want to be there as part of the restorative process. I want to bring renewal to you. I want to show you why you need to come back because he still recognizes that at our core, we are broken people without any hope except for Jesus. Before and after. And so he wants to be involved and he wants us to pray for people that are struggling. 
we as Christians have a tendency to see somebody sinning and be like, I'm done with you. Or we like to talk about it because that's way better than anything you know about me, or way worse than anything you know about me. So let's shoot them while they're down. That way you won't shoot at me at all, even though I'm doing stuff I shouldn't be doing too. In all likelihood, what John's talking about here is pray for the person who is open to the gospel and they are being just hammered with temptation because there is hope there. But for the person that has no hope, that has no interest in Jesus, no prayer will overcome that. Tracy? Yeah. I, I, think what, I think what he's saying here, he's not talking about primarily people who don't know the gospel. He's talking about people who know the gospel and are outright rejecting him. Yeah. Well, yeah. If a person is a believer in the church and they are unrepentant about sin, then yes, Scripture gives us instructions on what we are to do. Primarily what we are to do is to put them out of the church and give them over to their sin. And then they have to come to a place of repentance before they come back into the church. And whenever we look at that, the whole purpose of that is not punishment but is removal from the church so that they are faced with that their decision is removing them from God in the hopes that they will repent and return. And so those are instructions that we are given um, in, in order to how to deal with that. Yes, absolutely. I, how, how am I going to know whether your sin is truly unto death or not. How am I going to know? And for someone we care about, we are going to continue to pray for that person. I think what John is trying to say is this is all in the same argument. He wants you to have confidence in your faith that you know Jesus is the Son of God and you know that as your will is aligned with Him, He's going to answer uh, your prayers and that is all in the sense of us knowing that Jesus is truly the Son of God. And he's talking about now when there are believers that are not. They say they, they, they believe on one level, but they are not in. You know, there's something else has to happen with them. God is not going to be able to overcome that. They have to come to a place, and it's unlikely to happen. Now, I think he's talking about, I, no, yes, he's absolutely talking about non-believers, uh, but he's, he's not talking about people that have not experienced the gospel. He's talking, yes, he's talking about people that are coming to church and they're saying, I'm in, but I'm living completely opposite and I don't care. Yes. Yes. Okay. We got to go. I'm out of time. About out of time. That's it. For those three things, I want to wrap up with, um, what else? Um, can we know? So one of the questions 
that I wanted us to discuss, but we don't have time to do it today, is why do we continue to be drawn towards sin? Know that you are going to continue to be drawn towards sin and our temptation to look at someone who is falling under the pressure of temptation. Our temptation is to say, do better, do better. Sometimes we say that to ourselves, but the reality is, is that this is something we are all going to deal with. This is something that we all are still going to struggle with until Jesus returns. And this is one of the places that we are going to have to balance truth and grace. The grace to recognize they're going through something. The truth that they need to repent and turn back to God just as we do in our own sin. Why do we continue to be drawn towards sin? Okay, what are the other things that we can know? The third thing is this, or second thing is this. um, Sin will decrease in your life because Jesus is protecting you. This is about those who truly believe Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, Verse 18, chapter 5, verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. You should leave here confident that while you may struggle with temptation, God is there with you, protecting you. It is not as bad as it could be. He is there with you, and he is protecting you. You can know that, that he is not just sitting back going, oh, let's see what happens now. He is with you. He is involved, actively involved in the daily way in which you live your life. Galatians 5.1, this is how Paul describes it. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You have been set free. Live free. In Romans chapter 6, it says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let me just encourage you in this. Sin is still a serious issue. We cannot pretend it's not. It still has eternal consequences. And it's less about you trying harder and more about what is your relationship with Christ. Where is it actually at right now? If sin is not that big a deal to you, then I would say you've got some work to do in your relationship with Christ. If you are sinning right now, there is hope. There is forgiveness. And it comes with repentance. Let me encourage you. We cannot just come to the place and say, Jesus died for our sin. We don't have to worry about it anymore. Because that that was not the teachings of the apostles and that was not the teachings of Jesus. The third thing that you can know is that the world is hopelessly in Satan's control. The world is hopelessly and Satan's control. And I think it is a valid criticism of the church when it is said, if you cannot tell the difference between a Christian and anyone else in the world, something's wrong. We should look different. There should be something different about us. We can know that the world is hopelessly in Satan's control, which makes evangelism and just doing church and being the church together 
at times can feel a little defeating. Because you feel like you're, trying, you're going for a win and you want to reach people and you want them to experience Jesus and then you feel like you've got things against you at every turn. Guess what? You do. But Jesus is there. And the Holy Spirit is there. The world is hopelessly in Satan's control. Number four, what you can know is that Jesus helps us understand what is true and he understands or helps us to understand who is true. Verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. We can know these things. And then finally, I find it interesting. I don't know if you found it interesting how John ends his letter. He ends his letter with this. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Which is like, John, you haven't been talking about idols. Uh, do we, why are you starting a new topic? And it's like last sentence. What John is trying to say here are what idols actually are. Don't be distracted. Don't get distracted. Don't get distracted by the world. Don't get distracted by promises of the world. Don't get distracted by the appealing things of sin. Sin is appealing. I mean, it's appealing. Don't get distracted. Stay true to who is our God, because remember, that's what's most important. Stay true to recognizing who Jesus is, because that is what's most important important. Don't get distracted. So I would encourage you this week to just some of your time in prayer, maybe as you leave here today, I don't, this may not be a lunch topic, although it could be. (laughs) What are the things that distract you? And don't let them. That's what he's trying to say. Stay true, stay focused, keep walking this path. Because this is where the really good stuff in life is. Father, I know that you have still much that we don't know. And even in your word, you have given us such depth and understanding your heart. At times, we still don't understand. But God, I pray that uh, we would have the confidence that you're talking about. I pray that we would know these things with absolute certainty. God, we're all in different stages of aligning our will with yours. We're all at different stages with overcoming sin. Some of us have repented, but we're still paying the consequences for some of those actions. And God, I just pray that you would continue to keep our eyes focused steadfastly on you. You're the object of our faith. You are our deliverer. Father, I pray that we would spend our time with you in the ways that we talked about today, how we can know you. And it's not completely unlike how we know anyone else. I pray that we would know you, that we would know you well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.